I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is the LRB podcast. If you enjoy listening to it, you'll probably enjoy reading the London Review of Books. To subscribe from just £1 per issue, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link below. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones, and today I'm talking to Claire Wills, Professor of English at Cambridge and currently a fellow at the Columbia Institute for Ideas and Imagination in Paris. Her books include The Best Are Leaving on Emigration and Post-War Irish Culture. Her piece in the latest issue of the LRB is on Nethern Hospital, a psychiatric hospital in Coulston, Surrey, which opened in the first decade of the 20th century and closed in 1994. It's a companion piece, in a way, to one the LRB published six months ago on the mother and baby homes in Ireland, so we'll be talking a bit about that too. Hello Claire, and thank you very much for joining me. Hello. You begin your piece by describing a visit to an exhibition of Art Brut in Paris several years ago, and among the pictures on display were drawings by an artist who signed himself J.J. Began, who had been a patient in the 1940s at Nethern Hospital. And this struck you because your mother worked at Nethern, And did seeing those pictures bring back memories you hadn't thought of in a long time? Well, yes. It's always a bit of a shock when an experience you think of as quite private and personal is encountered in a different framework, when you meet your own past framed differently. And it was quite literally framed because I was seeing pictures on a wall. It's not that I'd forgotten all about Nethern or anything like that. My parents are quite elderly now and they like to reminisce. Um, My father likes to remember the cottage in which he grew up, which was built for Nethern employees or the hospital farm that he worked on sometimes. His parents had worked at Nethern from the late 1920s and he was born there. And my mother likes to tell stories about the nurses and doctors with whom she worked and sometimes about the patients. But it's true that encountering Began's drawings forced me to think about the institution and maybe my parents and my grandparents' role in it from another side, from the perspective of the patients. And I was at that time trying to do some research and thinking about the Irish institutions that you mentioned, um, particularly mother and baby homes and Magdalene laundries. And one of the questions that was preoccupying me was, how, how could this system have become normalised? How, how did people accept it? I had this question in my head which was went something like, you know, how do we learn to not see what we see or to not know what we know? And it suddenly became very clear to me, looking at the vegan drawings, that I knew what that process was like because I'd spent quite a lot of time at Nethern when I was a child, particularly in the early 70s. And really, in order to, to do that, in order to be in the hospital, as a child anyway, you had to learn not to look or not to look too closely. And presumably that's true of the adults as well, isn't it? That the doctors and nurses 
in a sense, their job was to look closely, but in other ways, there were things they didn't look closely at at all. Well, yeah, I suppose for the people who worked in the hospital, like my mother, everything in the hospital surroundings had a meaning and, and even a purpose. They could interpret the meaning of what they were seeing within the framework of the institution. And I couldn't. It made sense to them and it didn't make sense to me. And, and, and maybe the more opaque something seems, the more, the more you question it, the, the more, I, I suppose it's obvious, the more it needs to be explained. But And did you feel it needed explaining as a child or is it as a child you just accept oh no no I I thought it was weird even then (laughs) I don't just mean looking back it was weird although that is certainly true My, my younger sister and I used to go on home visits to patients with my mother and it really is impossible to imagine anything like that happening now a community psychiatric nurse take turning up with her kids in tow I mean there's so many safeguarding rules that you'd be breaking Though arguably, I suppose, it wasn't so bad for the patients to be interacting with children. And maybe it wasn't so bad for me and my sister to be interacting with the patients. Yeah, I can imagine it being quite helpful. It makes it all seem more normal in a good way. I mean, it's sort of... Yeah, possibly. Although I didn't love it, I must say. But the visits to the hospital, I really didn't like it. I talk in the piece about the corridors and I was I was really spooked by them. I was talk, talking to a psychiatrist recently who agreed with me that the corridors were defining. They were somehow part of the regime. As I recall, there'd be people lying about, kind of half sleeping on benches. And I imagine now that that was because it was quieter in the corridors than on the wards. But I don't, I can't remember what I imagined then. What I can recover of how it felt then is is a feeling of low-level fear, not fear of the patient so much as, hmm, I don't know how to put this exactly, F- fear of the sadness, fear of the suffering. I mean, I, do, I, I really don't want to imply that I was especially insightful as a child or anything like that. I think any child would have felt this because you didn't quite know what you were looking at. But I suppose if we're thinking about the question, how do we not see what we see? Perhaps as a child, I hadn't quite learned not to see it yet. I suppose the other thing about the corridors, possibly, is that you talk quite a lot about the the inside and the outside and the idea that part of the purpose of these institutions was to remove awkward or undesirable or difficult or occasionally dangerous people from what you at one point call civilian life and place them in new circumscribed communities. So this, this, this separation between those who are inside and those who are outside. But the corridor is a sort of is a space in between, isn't it, somehow? It's neither inside nor outside. It's, it's where that, if that border's permeable, it's where it is porous. Yeah, yeah. I was very scared about opening the wrong door by mistake, you know, being in a place that I shouldn't be and seeing something I shouldn't see or didn't want to see. I mean, in the piece, I talk about the work of the sociologist Ir- Irving Goffman and his theory of the total institution, which he developed in, in the mid 50s, partly from, he spent a year at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, which is a huge asylum with nearly 7,000 inmates. He was there as a kind of anthropologist, I suppose. And the point about total institutions for Goffman was that the boundaries weren't permeable. He, he analyzes the asylum as a, a kind of system analogous to a prison. And one of the questions he was asking was, how do you get used to existence inside these institutions? How does it become bearable? How does it become understood? 
And he, he was interested in what he called the new life story, the story of your existence and why you're there, that you have to tell yourself in order to settle down inside the institution. And he argued that the whole kind of complex bureaucratic machinery inside the institutions, you know, wards and levels and intense hierarchical systems was designed to make it all make sense. But I guess the hospital, as I encountered it in the early 70s, had, as it were, learnt from Goffman and other critics and was trying to open up to the community, trying to shift from being based on principles of confinement to, to principles of cure. And as the purpose of the hospital shifted from being primarily custodial or confining towards the goals of treatment and cure, those boundaries had to become more and more permeable. You could be ill and then you could be better because the treatment had worked or the other way around. So one of the questions I was asking in the piece was, you know, if there is no clear boundary to the institution, if it's no longer exactly clear who's inside and who's outside, and I like your point about the corridors being the place where those people meet, if you can pass back and forth, what does that do to the idea of consent, of accepting your place inside the institution? And I think one thing it does is require of us a far more active form of buying in. I mean, in an earlier period, people consented because they had to, they had no choice. So in fact, maybe consent isn't a helpful term. What is forced consent? This comes up in the piece on mother and baby homes around forced adoptions. You know, if mothers signed adoption papers because they felt they had no option, can that be understood as consenting to separation from their child? But And you also draw a distinction in the piece between consent and acquiescence. Yeah. So I think under the total institution system, people had to acquiesce. They had no choice. But as the hospitals shift from confinement to cure in the 1950s and 60s, one of the things that changes is a shift in the nature of buying in. You have to believe in the treatments. You have to believe in the cure. You have to believe in the story that the psychiatric experts are telling you. And I talk in the piece about various kind of soft propaganda efforts to get people to buy in. There's a BBC television series in the late 50s dedicated to explaining the new treatments, you know, films in the hospital, visits by politicians, all designed to reduce the stigma around mental illness and encourage people to believe in the possibility of cure. I mean, I, I came across a document in the BBC archives about the series of called The Hurt Mind. And the pitch was really clear. The series was designed to allay fear and get people on side with the new treatments. It was asking for a different form of consent. And that's asking everybody. It's asking patients while they're patients, but it's also asking the doctors and nurses to go along with the treatments. You know, you talk about a lot of these different kinds of treatments that were done, many of them truly horrible was that from lobotomies and insulin shock, you know, and there's Carl Solomon's account of in receiving insulin shock therapy, the, the American beat poet who Anna Ginsberg dedicated Hal to, and his his account of receiving insulin shock is horrifying. And you and even when Ligactyl came along, but you know, I've heard people say that actually Ligactyl is as bad as from the point of view of the, the patient, it's a 
it's as horrible as the, as the experience of psychosis. But the doctors and nurses believed what they were doing as they were doing it, and then a new treatment came along, and they switched to that. And you, you talk about the speed at which they changed their minds. So that, there's a sense in which they consent or acquiesce to the institution, to the system as well, as well as the patients. Yeah, and I don't think there's one single explanation for that. I mean, you might say, if you're in the business of treatment, you have to come up with treatments. And, and you know, people wanted to believe the treatments worked because, and I think they were sincere, they, they wanted to relieve suffering. I'm sure that most of the doctors who came up with new treatments and often used their own patients as guinea pigs were sincere in wanting to find well, ways of helping their patients. I don't think that we can get away from the fact that many of these, or most of these treatments, were barbaric, however. And I suppose one question might be whether the operations of today's multi-million pound drug industry, a different kind of institution without high walls, but an institution nonetheless, whether that may have broken the link between a real consciousness of individual suffering and the rollout of lucrative new treatments. I mean, I, I find today's drug industry just as frightening as the insulin treatments and the lobotomies, if not more so, in that consent comes along packaged inside a rhetoric of, you know, personal choice and autonomy. I mean, I, I may be exaggerating here. It may not be more dangerous, but I do think the case is still out. And I think there may be something to be said here about a kind of lack of sociological analysis of the place of mental health in today's society. There's a great deal of talk about mental health, and I think it can only be a good thing that the stigma around talking about it has receded so much. It really is a conversation now that people seem to feel comfortable having in a way it wasn't before. But at the same time, social or political theory seems to have given up on thinking about mental health in social terms. It's as though it's become an entirely private matter. I read an article recently by Nicholas Rose and, and some others, which begins by making the point that academic sociology of the 60s and 70s, you know, in that, in that work, it was impossible to have a view of society without some notion of what constituted mental health and mental illness. So think of Goffman, Foucault, Lang, Fanon, Dorothy Smith. And the, the, the point that Rose is making is that the sociology of our own time has been impoverished by reneging on this obligation. And I'd suggest that thinking about mental health is impoverished too, if we don't see it in social terms. There's another thing, I suppose, about consent. I was trying to explain to a colleague of mine lately what I was trying to think about with the kind of opening up an enlarging of the, of the kind of consent system as the boundaries of, of the institutions disappear. And he basically said, yeah, yeah, we know all that. Foucault said it years ago. And I take his point, but I also think perhaps we don't quite know it because we're still inside it. We still are not seeing exactly how that system worked and what we are asked to say yes to. And there's a bit where you talk about um, the case history being a kind of life story and that what, what used to be just life, when someone is then has to give their case history, it becomes, it changes what went before. But there's an idea of a closing off and you're looking back at it up until this point and that somehow if we're looking after the psychiatric 
residential, I'm not sure <laughs> residential is quite the right word, but the psychiatric hospitals closed. We can now look back at the history of them as though it's a finished history that they were opened by the Edwardians and they were closed in the 1990s. And so we can somehow look back at that as a closed, complete history. We have a we or we imagine that there's an there's an arc there that we can look at, and the same with the the institution in Ireland with the Magdalen laundries and the the mother and baby homes. That now that they're closed, we can see them as history. Although of course there are ways in which we're still living with them and and, and in them. That perhaps by looking at them as history, we're pretending that they've that something's finished which hasn't yet finished. But also that when we're actually inside those things, looking at the history of that we're in the middle of it. It's very hard. It's very hard to to see it. Well, yes, I, I I think that's true to a certain extent, in the sense of being able to construct a fully rounded history of those institutions. You sort of have to have to wait till it's over, in a way. But I think there's also something dangerous about that kind of assumption. It can be a recipe for complacency, can't it? As though we can't see the truth of any system while we're inside it. I say in one of the pieces, the past has to be believed in by sufficient numbers of people in order to qualify as the past. You know, you have to somehow have a majority that are inside the thing that they're in. I do think that's broadly true, but that shouldn't stop us, should it? Trying to analyse the systems that we are operating inside. And there have always been whistleblowers or people who worked hard to try to see through the totality of the institution to the cruelties that came with it and to how it might be done otherwise. I mean, Goffman was one of those, and there are many others. I talk a bit about Lang. I don't talk about Foucault in the piece. I mean, that is how change happens. If we were having a different kind of conversation, we'd be using words like ideology or hegemony at this point. And I guess I don't think any ideology is total. And we have a duty to try and understand the logics of the systems that we're currently benefiting from. But the difficulty, of course, is that one of the, I mean, I don't fully think this, but I partly think this, that if you if you step too far outside, if you if you question everything about the system that you live inside, then that's when you're branded insane and you're put in, in an institution. But the danger of that is then you, you you're then saying that, mental extreme mental illness isn't real it's always just questioning reality and that and that and I don't want to say that because yeah I think that is really tricky I mean these people were many people were really ill some of them were in hospital because their parents their relatives didn't want to deal with them and others had been seriously ill but I think once you're inside the hospital part of your affliction becomes the hospital itself and I think that's That is what the anti-psychiatry movement understood in the 50s and 60s. And I guess this is an optimistic story because there was a zeitgeist that grew in the 60s. You know, people had Lang on their bookshelves and it enabled the system to change. So the system did evolve. It it was not a a totally closed total institution. And... I suppose one of the things is I do make draw a parallel between the psychiatric institutions in Britain and other kinds of total institution in Ireland, like the mother and baby homes or Magdalene asylums. And although I think that parallel is valid at a certain historical moment, I don't want to be understood 
to be saying that the mother and baby homes were a similar kind of institution to psychiatric hospitals in the 70s and 80s. They were not. What happened in Ireland, and I think this is why there's such a a huge reckoning going on in Irish society over this history, what happened in Ireland is that they remained total, punitive, carceral institutions for far, far longer than they should have done. And and this was not just um, a, a kind of legacy of the poor law or a kind of state institution trying to mop up its problematic citizens and kind of deal with them inside a bunch of high walls. This was made worse because there was a Catholic ideology of the family that made it very, very hard. You know, so it didn't really matter what was happening outside the walls, that those institutions carried on and carried on for far too long. Um, Well, it all happened for far too long, but I mean, for even longer than in other countries. So this is a very crude summary that at these mother and baby homes, which were places where particularly, although not only unmarried, mothers went to have their children and they stayed there and the children sometimes stayed there and some of them were sent out later sent out for adoption. Some of them later went home with their birth mothers and large numbers of the children living in, in these homes died and were not buried and that there were some of them, a lot of remains of dead children were found in structures that had originally built as sewage tanks and one of the things that you describe in your piece this sort of slippage that there's a map from 1927 in which these structures are described as sewage tanks and then by a map of the 1970s they're described as burial grounds and there was an inquiry into this and a commission to investigate it who published their findings recently in your piece in in may was a, a review of the commission's findings Yes, yeah, so so that that the recent history of the mother and baby homes begins really in 2013-2014 when a local historian Catherine Corliss um was bothered by missing burial registrations of the Chew mother and baby home in County Galway. She lived close by and had had I think this is important actually sort of the community understanding of what the home was she had grown up with it and that is that is what had set her searching for for burial records and she didn't find them and eventually there was an exhumation of the grounds of the home and nearly 800 babies and small the bodies of nearly 800 babies and small children were found to have been um deposited in the remains of something like a septic tank or something that had been for a time used as a septic tank. And this became a huge, well, it was such a shocking series of revelations. And uh, the the government set up um, the Commission on Mother and Baby Homes to report into a whole series of the, the burial practices in the homes, but also how they came into being, who went there, how long they stayed, how they were funded, a, a whole kind of social and legal history and uncovering of the um, the homes from 1922 and the independence of the free state moment 
until the last of the homes closed in the 1990s. And the, the Commission has been reporting slowly since 20... I may be wrong about this, 2018. It began in 2015 and it's been uh, producing short interim reports and produced its final report in January of this year. And it did cause a huge furore. People were not prepared, I think, for the way in which the story was told There has been an enormous amount of criticism of the Commission and of the state for the terms of the Commission report. Because one of the things that the the Commission didn't do, if I understand from your piece, is that the the, the testimony of of the mothers was often somehow discounted and that question of consent that we were talking about earlier, that women would say they didn't consent or even know necessarily what was happening in describing what happened to them and there's a sense in which the commission didn't entirely believe them or didn't accept their version of their own history that they were telling yes there's a very unfortunate sentence somewhere in the report which suggests that you know survivors of the homes may have been talking to each other um and therefore their evidence was suspect and you, you know it's it's such a shocking thing to read in an official report I think I think the treatment of the survivors' evidence was hugely problematic, but I think more as problematic was that the broad assumptions which were brought to working through the report. So advocacy groups, survivors' groups, feminist legal scholars have been very, very kind of interesting, and they've produced, in fact, an alternative executive summary in which they take the evidence, the same evidence that is in the report, and draw very, very different conclusions by using a framework of human rights, the dignity of women and children's rights, rather than a kind of historical contextual framework. So I I say in, in the piece that the Irish governments chose not to frame the Commission's remit in terms of human rights. And part of the reason for that is clearly that it was was going to cost too much. So the report recommends that the eligibility for financial redress for people who were in the homes should be limited to the women who lived in the homes before 1973, um, when the unmarried mother's allowance was introduced, and to those who stayed for longer than six months, because six months is the average in which other you might have stayed in another European country. It doesn't recommend redress for those whose claims relate to forced adoption, whether mothers or children, or for those who say they were coerced to enter the homes. And I think the basic problem here is that rather than ask whether mothers were subject to inhumane or, and degrading treatment, the government steered the commission to ask instead whether mothers did or didn't have a worse time than other people who were incarcerated, for example, in Magdalen laundries or in industrial schools. So there's a kind of Reparations are judged on a sort of sliding scale of harms because otherwise I think the cost of the redress schemes might get out of hand. And I I think the survivors, the lawyers, the feminist critics of the report are absolutely right and just in their criticisms. The report does not target the failures of the state 
and its failure to protect its own citizens. And the, the alternative executive summary that I just mentioned, drawn up by these feminist legal scholars alongside survivors of the homes, they say no. The mother and that baby homes did not provide a refuge, harsh or otherwise, for women who'd been failed by their families and the fathers of their children. The homes were part of a system that failed to support unmarried women and their children as their human rights required. And I, I, I think that is central. And I suppose one of the things that is disturbing about the report as it was completed is that it enacts some of the kinds of disavowal that we've been talking about. It's so invested in the importance of understanding the historical and social context that, as it were, the, a, a state's or a community's rights and responsibilities to its citizens still, as it were, can't be seen. So the report is very long on historical understanding and short on on human rights and, and justice. I suppose one thing that is worth saying about that kind of division between historical understanding on the one hand and a human rights and justice uh, framework on the other is that we need both. I, I, I think it's really important to acknowledge that the critics of the commission are right and yet at the same time, we do need to understand how a community, not just family members, but all the functionaries that process these women and children from the nuns and the priests to the sitting, people sitting in the Department of Health or the County Council, how a very large section of Irish society did know what was going on in those homes and learnt to not know what they knew. So, so I, I am very concerned to insist, really, that this is a chance for us to think about questions of collective responsibility. The, these questions seem to me really important because it's not as though this problem of collective responsibility has gone away. I mean, arguably, despite everything we now know, we are currently turning a blind eye, as Beckett says in Murphy, to the construction of new total institutions for the incarceration of migrants and refugees on Europe's borders. And these are total institutions in which societies vulnerable have to create a new life story through a bureaucratic machinery in order to be classed as fully human, just in the way that Goffman argues happens in these institutions. And in case we don't notice, these are people claiming asylum. Even the word is the same as the old mental institutions. And some of the buildings are the same, aren't they? That asylum seekers are being housed in former psychiatric hospitals. Yes, there's a wonderful um, photographic artwork, really, called Asylum Archive. Um, it's online. It's, it's a series of photographs of direct provision centres for refugees and asylum seekers in Ireland. And so, some of them are the same buildings as were used as mother and baby homes and Magdalene asylums in the past. So, so I think there is something arrogant in us not accepting that we also are guilty of failing to see what is in front of our eyes. You know, what are we doing when we walk past a homeless person on the street except failing to see what we see or to know what we know? Modern states create injustice. They have a rationale for doing it. 
for saying who is in and who is out. And very few of us do anything about it. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things which I wondered about in these two pieces, the first one is very much, is all about Ireland and focused on that and the ways in which what happened at the mother and baby homes is a specifically Irish. But then as, as an English reader, you kind of think that this piece about the psychiatric hospitals in Britain is coming back and saying, but don't think it's only Ireland. Because then again, I mean, another of the, the very poorest borders that you talk about is between Britain and Ireland. And you ask, why was it that so many of the nurses in Britain's psychiatric hospitals, like your mother, were Irish? And and that this isn't and to and to it's a way of the second piece. One of the things I took from it is saying to to British people, don't think that you're you're exempt from this. That that the mother and baby homes maybe have many things about that are specifically Irish, but there are other ways in which these questions of institutionalisation and who we lock away and what we do to the people we lock away, and that the the questions that way beyond Ireland to the whole rest of the world. Absolutely. That is something that I really wanted to be thinking about and, and to, to try and kind of, well, to, to get other people to think about. I became very sort of hooked on, in, in his 1938 novel, Murphy, Samuel Beckett calls the psychiatric hospital, it's actually the, the royal, the Bethlehem Hospital. He renames it the Magdalene Mental Mercy Seat. He's taking names associated with deeply Catholic and Irish institutions like the Magdalene Homes and the Sisters of Mercy and plonking them onto a secular British institution. So I don't think we need to go to Beckett to see the links, but Beckett helped me to get there, or at least he reassured me I wasn't on the wrong track. The history of the institutions themselves tells us that they are linked. They were developed under the British poor laws of the 19th century. The workhouses, the psychiatric hospitals and so on were rolled out simultaneously across the two islands as a kind of rudimentary welfare state. They're, they're modern institutions of a modern state, a way of managing the poor, the sick and the old and, and the infirm. So yes, I, I draw a parallel between the mother and baby homes and other Irish institutions of containment and England's total institutions. And I think there are real parallels, particularly in the period before the Second World War, when on both sides of the Irish Sea, welfare institutions operated as total institutions. But again, I, I don't want to be understood as suggesting that they stayed the same. They didn't. Part of what we've been talking about is the evolving nature of psychiatric care, the move away from confinement towards cure in Britain, the involvement of the patient in decision-making and so on. And, and, and that just didn't happen in Ireland until much later. The Tume Home, the Bessborough Home and a whole raft of other institutions in Ireland were punitive and carceral institutions for far longer than that regime continued in, in Britain. And I, I suppose we need to ask, why didn't they evolve? How could dead babies be dropped into cisterns at the tomb home? How could it happen at any time? But also, how could it have been happening in the 1950s? How could anyone believe that that was natural or logical or reasonable? And part of the answer to that has to be 
that the system was in control. And it was a system which was, I think, by this period, by the 50s and 60s, propelled by a rather different view of human nature to that in the secular institutions in Britain. And I talk in the piece about the the effect of the logic of the Catholic family, a strongly held conservative and misogynist view of natural hierarchy, truth and rights, that, that really was a break on the evolution of those institutions to, to more, to use the language we were using before, to more kind of open and consenting and permeable ones. So I, I'm not trying to suggest that by the 1970s, for example, when I'm wandering around Nethern, that, that that is a similar kind of institution to a mother and baby home. Not, not at all. I'm not suggesting that, but I, I am trying to, to ask us to look at the two in tandem and see what kind of light they might shed on one another. I just happened to be reading recently about um, a psychiatric nurse called Annie Altschul, who was a, a Jewish refugee from Vienna who came came to the UK in the late 1930s and worked at the, the Maudsley in the 1940s and, and then became a professor at Edinburgh, but did a lot to change the way that psychiatric nursing was talking about and just the idea of talking to patients and listening to patients and, and was involved with that. And one of the things that she said was her sense of being an outsider, being herself, coming to the country as a refugee, that she had a an insight that the people who didn't have that experience wouldn't have had, and that and that made her a better psychiatric nurse. Yeah, I think I think that's an optimistic way of looking at it. Not a not an untrue way. Um, she she may just have been a remarkable individual because you know the thing is, all the psychiatric nurses were outsiders. Psychiatric nursing was just a crap job. Nobody wanted it. So you you know if you if you were a a migrant from Wales in the at the turn of the century, the tens and the twenties, you'd become an attendant in a hospital. You know, very large numbers of Welsh. It was a route into the middle class for the for, for for the Welsh, and then for the Irish, and later for West Indians. It was a job for migrants, and also many psychiatrists as well were outsiders. So my mother worked with uh, Dr. Freudenberg, who was um, a Viennese refugee. And, you know, he was very forward thinking, but he wasn't more think- forward thinking than, for example, David Cooper or, or, or the other psychiatrists who were really on a wave of trying to rethink what psychiatry could and should be in this period. The thing we haven't talked about, which you, you mentioned in the piece, is that your mother appeared in a film. It's called Out of True. Out of True, in which she was played a, a patient. And that question, just a question of changing clothes, changing costume, and someone who is a nurse is then presented on film as a patient. Because had you seen that film before you were researching this piece? No, I hadn't. I mean, I suppose the film was one of the reasons why I wrote the piece. My mother recalled, because as I say, she likes to reminisce about Nethern, and she recalled that she was in this film. She couldn't remember anything about it, and I spent ages trying to find it. All I knew was that the lead actress was blonde. And I was terribly proud of myself when I found it. It's, it's a film which is trying to get the public on board with the new new treatments. And so, you know, this, this woman, a housewife, has a kind of depressive episode, which 
is quite extreme and she gets taken to Nethern where she meets a bunch of very, very kind doctors who try a series of um, series of treatments, one after the other, insulin treatment, ECT. It all looks terribly benign and, and, and helpful. Uh, she does exercises and finally she gets to talk to a psychoanalytically informed psychiatrist. And there was a real one, Dr. Yates at Nevin at the time. And, I mean, the whole film is Don't Be Frightened. It's all all right. And I, I have a lot of time for that. I mean, of course it was important for people to be brought on board with, with the fact that mental illness can come to any of us and that there are cures and treatments there for us. But I suppose sort of keep coming back to this idea of the idea that these fixed roles and anyone at any could be a patient at any time. I mean, it's something that I hadn't particularly thought about, but I mean, I suppose there are so many of these places that everyone grew up near to one. I mean, I've thought about in terms of where I grew up, that one of the things that was that the atomic weapons establishment at Aldermaston was five miles away. And it's one of those places that everyone knew it was there. But I somehow imagined it being much further away than it really was. And that way that you talk about the, the Grange Gorman Asylum in the middle of Dublin, and if you ask people where it was, they imagine it being outside the city. And you quote the Archbishop of Galway in the 1950s saying, such a home must be in a place that is quiet, remote and surrounded by high boundary walls. And uh, the other direction from my house, from the, from the bomb factory, which everyone knew was there, but you couldn't imagine it was somehow in the middle of a, of a place where people lived and went about their lives, that they were, they were making bombs. And a mile in the other direction, there was a, a psychiatric hospital that was behind trees and it was, happened to be next to the general hospital that had been built 50 years later. But somehow there it was and drove past it every day without ever thinking about the hundreds of people who lived there or that they had anything to do with me. But it was the same, exactly the same kind of institution to which various great aunts you hear mentioned from the family who were committed to institutions in the 1930s and the 1940s and so that as someone who's outside you think you're outside and you don't and you don't think about it you don't think about what's inside or who the and yet as you know I mean that's one of the things that your piece has really made me think about that and the way that people we don't think about Yarl's Wood we don't think about where and throughout Europe where asylum seekers are being locked away and, and very similar situations with the back wards and the keys and the series of locks and the way that we take these people we don't want to think about and we only start thinking about them once once they're not the group we're locking up anymore we only think about the people we're no longer locking up we don't think about the people who we are locking up now I think that's really really true and it's one one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot and and why I think I've, I'm writing these pieces because we can't only talk about what has happened in the past as something that we should have known about and we should have done something about. We have to learn from that to think about, about the now. You were talking about these institutions hiding in plain sight and it's not just that you could see them. I don't mean you personally, but one. Uh, it's not just that they were housed in these huge buildings right in the middle of cities or right on the edge of towns and naturally knew, people knew perhaps not everything but a good deal about when what went on in them um, I'm thinking about the mother and baby homes and Magdalene asylums again in 
Ireland a, a few years ago, there, were, there was a very hard-hitting piece of immersive theatre by Louise Lowe and Anu Productions, staged in a disused Magdalene laundry in Sean McDermott Street in Dublin. It's, it, the piece was just called Laundry. And audience members go inside the laundry and they're confronted by different scenes of women basically incarcerated or at work. Um, and you might, as an audience member, be asked by one of the women who are actors but who are immersively being laundry workers, you might be asked by one of them, to help them escape. And I think this brilliantly brought home the problem of knowing and not knowing at the same time. Because, you know, very few of those women and girls were helped. The, the system was in control. It was, it was natural. And even though there's been lots of criticism of the Mother and Baby Home Commission report, one thing it's really eloquent on is how everyone knew what was going on. There was a vast bureaucratic machinery keeping the system going. Mothers and babies went across literally scores of deaths. County councillors tried to recoup money from one another or from the families of mothers in the homes. There were inspection reports, interventions. Uh, it seems, as you pointed out, there was even some knowledge in the Department of Health about the tomb cisterns. This was not known. But yet the Commission kept coming up against the refusal of people who were involved, to acknowledge what they knew. So a nun who signed a, you know, had signed death registrations, who was not able to recall any deaths while she was living there. I'm slightly wary of trying to take metaphors out of this sort of thing, because it's the, sort of the, the facts need to be looked at as facts, but at the same time, it's sometimes impossible not to see them as metaphors that you describe. Um, James Deeney, the chief medical advisor, going to Bessborough, when seeing that the, all these babies in these beautifully clean cots, but with filthy nappies, which was what was killing them, probably, that there was an infection. And he talks about what was hidden below. And it's so hard not to see that as a, as a metonym for the whole system, really. Yes, I think I am wary of the idea of there being secrets and things hidden. Yes, you're right, in that instance... The tops of the cots looked all pristine and underneath the children were dying. And I suppose you could say the same about tomb, the cisterns at the top, you know, there's grass and whatever, and underneath there's, there's a horror. But I also believe that what is more disturbing is what we don't see, even though it is right in front of our eyes. In the, at the beginning of the, the Nethern piece, when you're um, writing about J.J. Began's pictures, and you describe people, the doctors, therapists and critics, sort of looking for a hidden meaning and these strange words that he wrote, and you looked at them and you see a name and address. You know, he said a name and a job, sculptor and, or an identity and an address. It seems as if you're the first person to see that as, as you know, hidden in plain sight, a name and address, because they were looking for something hidden. They're looking for an esoteric secret meaning rather than what's just, you know, the label that, that's staring at them. Yes, I, I, th I think th there's something about the way that art can frame the ordinary that can enable us to see it. I'm, I'm very fond of a phrase by a critic who I think is probably very old fashioned now. 
Pierre Macheret, he, he says, you know, what art, art gives us is the experience of experience. And it's, it's a phrase that I absolutely love. Um, by framing reality, by placing it under torsion, we can see things that we couldn't see before. I don't think we need to be on the hunt for secrets and hidden meanings. But I do think we ha- we have a duty. I ca- I've used the word duty before, and I- I'm worried that it sounds a bit bossy. I think, I think it's okay. It's kind of, if you're talking about, you can't talk about rights without talking about duties. And we, well, we've we do about have human a, rights, so. a, a yeah. duty to know the things we know and to talk about them. And what art can do is to frame and, and torsion things so that we, I, I often have an image like, in my head of a kind of kaleidoscope that you you kind of tighten and it it creates a different pattern, a new pattern. And because of the new pattern, you can see more of of the material out of which that pattern is made. I was thinking before we talked of of a novel by John McGahan, his last novel, That They May Face the Rising Sun, which is, I think, a totally weird and and very dark novel, which you could read as a very simple portrait of rural Roscommon sometime between the 1950s and the 1990s. It's, It's a very gentle novel. Nothing horrific seems to occur. And yet, Actually, the landscape is full of horrors. And there's a character in the novel called The Homeboy. And he's basically kind of enslaved to a couple on a farm further up the hill. He's not a boy. He's a middle-aged man who clearly was a resident in one of the mother and baby homes and probably an industrial school. And he's never been educated. He's, He's one of the outcast. He has been outcast and he remains outcast, even though the whole community knows about him. They call him the homeboy. He's one of them and yet he is not one of them. And I think when McGahan places him in the middle of a book like that, it's not a secret. Nothing is a secret. But by framing it, we are able to see it. And I, I guess I think this is where duty comes in. If we don't see it and talk about it and ask what our responsibilities and duties are in relation to this history, then we are falling back into the same kinds of disavowal, the same kinds of, well, it wasn't my fault. Well, it's a big system. What could I have done? We didn't know. We're falling back into that all over again. And the other artist you, you write about, and we have um, some of her pictures in the, in the paper, you begin with this man whose name may or may not have been J.J. Began, and then Rolanda Polonsky, who was trained as an artist, who in a sense was, in big inverted commas, was a real artist, and perhaps in a way that he wasn't. Is that a fair distinction, or is that another boundary between... Well, you know, we really don't know about Began. We can't know. I think of him as an artist. I think of him as doing the kind of framing that I've just talked about, that placing of reality under torsion so that we can see something that is in plain sight and yet we have not yet recognised. Actually, just as you were asking that question, I was thinking, how interesting. All three of the artists in both these pieces, Lowry, Polonsky and Began, are all sculptors. There's something, I think, about the physicality of the body that these 
artists are trying to get to. I, I mean, I, I think Lowry's work on the mother and baby homes is absolutely extraordinary, really, really beautiful and haunting. So she works in glass and, you know, talk about seeing and seeing through something. If, if you're working with, with glass, it is, it is transparent and yet it is extremely heavy. So, so she's, she's working with the idea of light and heaviness and, and the kind of burden of the history that she is casting into these, these sculptures. And actually, I'm only just thinking this now. That, that is, I think, what Polonsky is doing. So Polonsky was a sculptor, trained as a sculptor, before she went to Nevin, where she ended up spending 35 years in the end. And I believe she probably was ill when she first entered the hospital, but she was certainly not ill for a great many of the years in which she stayed there. And I think she's a very good example of one of Irving Goffman's people caught in the hospital by contingencies. By the time she's been there a few years, part of her affliction is the hospital itself. And the sculptures she makes um, are all representations of suffering a kind of correspondence between Christ's suffering on the cross and female suffering on earth. I think there's a kind of abstraction going on in Polonsky's work. She, she wasn't living a life in the sense of a kind of everyday existence in which there was change or even, you know, events to speak of. As I say, she spent 35 years in the hospital and her days in those 35 years were much the same. And she reached for religious meaning, what she calls the eternities, to make sense of her existence. And I actually don't think that Polonsky's reaching for abstraction is so different from, say, a writer like Beckett, who in Endgame, say, or even Waiting for Godot, is asking, what are we if we're nothing but empty time, time passing without narrative? I use the word afterlife in relation to Began's existence in the hospital and, and kind of buried life and half-life in relation to Polonsky. The, these are our life stories without, without progress in the, in the way that we understand progress. I don't want to kind of denigrate their lives and say there was, there was nothing in them. But progress in its mildest form is, is something that since the Enlightenment, at least, we felt is part of the point of being alive. Progress is, as in change. It's where we get the buildings from and from. You know, the whole notion of development, of evolution, of change. And people stuck in these total institutions didn't have that. And yet they continued to produce art. I find it intensely moving that art, it, it is self-expression. It's self-expression. And again and again, what is being expressed is a sense of my suffering, if I'm Polonsky, my suffering making sense to me because it is a version of Christ's suffering. And one of the ways you put it in the piece is that the story Polonsky told was about meaning rather than experience. In fact, all personal experience had been emptied out of it. And this idea that there's possibly a tension between meaning and experience, and that maybe if we'd pay too much attention to to case histories or to other kinds of histories. And this almost seems to come back with the problems with the Mother and Baby Home Commission. There's a way in which we imagine that telling stories is a way of finding meaning. But can they also be a barrier to meaning? I mean, a lot of Beckett's work, the novels as well as the plays, seems to be pushing against that. The idea that somehow you need to 
that we think if we could, if we only knew the story, if we only knew the history, if we only knew how we got to be here, everything would make sense. And is there a sense in which actually that can be a distraction and from just looking at where we are now? What is in front of you now? I, I'm, I'm basically on the side of stories, but I think yeah. we need to read them right. I, I mean, I don't think that there is a, a thing called experience or the everyday or the story of everyday life that is at a kind of lower order to another thing that is called meaning and which we might find if we work hard and dig underneath the experience. I mean, I really don't think that. That's, that's why I keep saying we need to look at what is straight in front of us. This, and, and, and the story can tell us that if we read it right, if we, if we place the right frame around it. I couldn't see what I, what I had experienced at Nevin until I saw Began's framed story, as it were, on the wall in that in that um, Paris exhibition, and then then th- that new framing enabled me to go back and think about what I had experienced before. But it wasn't a secret to me. There was no hidden meaning. I I think there very rarely is a hidden meaning. It's there on the surface, and we don't want to look at it. Claire Wills, thank you very much. Thank you. You can read Claire Wills's piece on Nethern in the current issue of the LRB, along with James Butler and Adam Tews on Andreas Malm, Neil Asherson on Immigration and the End of Empire, and A Diary by Anne Enright. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes. The music is by Kieran Brunt, and I'm Thomas Jones. <laughs>